0: And once again, good morning, good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 3. As we've been working our way through John's Gospel here on Sunday morning at Calvary, last week we began looking at the first part of John 3, verses really 1 to 21, which many consider to be one of the greatest sections in the Bible. Now, I know skeptics of Christianity would hear me say that and go, well, what does a conversation between a religious guy and a Jewish carpenter have to do with me? I mean, why is it so great? Well, it's great because Jesus tells uh, a very religious man. Now, you understand, a very religious man named Nicodemus, that his religious works cannot get him into heaven. And then proceeds to tell him that the only way he and everyone else in the world can be saved and enter into heaven is, and he's going to tell us that. In fact, we could broaden the impact of this conversation by saying this scripture, or this section of scripture is great because in reality, listen, it's a conversation between God and mankind on the single most important subject of life, eternal life. Now, I've divided the first 21 verses of John 3 this way. The confused seeker, verses 1 to 12. The condescending savior, verses 13 to 16. And the condemned sinner, verses 17 to 21. Now, let me just say this, okay, if you're new with us, especially. There's a lot of teachers that, and I believe this is one of the most important passages in all the Bible. There's a lot of teachers that, when they come to John 3... They'll just hit a few of the highlights and move on. Their style is more of an overview. And, and I respect that. Nothing wrong with that. My own pastor, that was his style and I loved it. But I'm not that way. okay? And especially when we talk about a very important section of the Scripture, we don't want to rush through it. That's why we've been really dissecting it. Really uh, you know, taking it in pieces to find out exactly what the Lord is saying here. Because it is supremely important. So we started last week with the first section I've entitled, The Confused Seeker. And to kind of give you the context, let's start in verse 1, where it says there was a, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, these miracles that you do, unless god is with him so right off the bat we're introduced to a pharisee named nicodemus now the pharisees were an ultra orthodox uh, or ultra orthodox sect of judaism they numbered about six thousand. most of them were hypocrites um really and and they hated jesus there was a handful though and nicodemus was one of them later saul of tarsus was another who were good guys and only wanted to live away from the pollution of the world, to live a life closer to God. In fact, the word Pharisee means to separate. They wanted to separate themselves from the corruption of the world to live exclusively for God. Nicodemus was one of these guys. He says he was a ruler in Israel. In other words, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Council, comparable to our Supreme Court, we'll say. And he comes to Jesus by night representing this group of Pharisees and basically says that Jesus because of the miracles that you're doing there is a few of us that have come to believe you could in fact be the Messiah. And if that, that if that's true and you're the Messiah, we know the kingdom is not far behind because they always believed rightly so when Messiah came, he was going to bring the kingdom. So this group of Pharisees believed Jesus was could be the Messiah. Therefore the kingdom is got to be coming very close, very near. And uh... Because the kingdom was on Nicodemus's mind, Jesus launches now into his response, which confuses Nicodemus. We talked about this last week, so if you weren't here, you can go online and listen to the study. Let me just quickly go through it. Verse 3, again, Nicodemus is thinking about the kingdom. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, we can understand Nicodemus' confusion. He says to Jesus, We think, a group of us thinks that you could be the Messiah, so the kingdom has got to be very near." He said, well, let me tell you something, Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you, can't, you won't even see the kingdom. Born again? Lord, I'm an old man. How can I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? See, Nicodemus thinks at this point, and that's why he's confused, that Jesus is saying, to get into the kingdom, you've got to be born twice physically. And Jesus says, no, no, he's very patient with Nicodemus. The Lord says, no. Let me explain this to you, okay? Um, unless you're born of water... End of the spirit, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. You won't enter it. All right? We talked about this last week. Born of water, in my mind, is physical birth. As the child is growing in its mother's womb in a bag of water, the amniotic fluid, and when the bag of water breaks, this child is coming. He's going to, or she's going to be born, right? Physical birth. Because Nicodemus is thinking physical birth. I got to be born twice physically to get into the kingdom? No. Got to be born once of water, physical. But then you have to be born again of the spirit. And I think verse 6 bolsters that interpretation because he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, physical birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, guys, if you're going to really get your minds around this section, you have to understand that being born again, as D.L. Moody put it, I was reading some of his writings, as D.L. Moody put it, this is not reformation. This is not turning over a new leaf, okay? This is not telling God, I'm going to work harder to be a better person. He's talking about a fundamental change of existence. Religion gives people the illusion something spiritual has taken place. People come to church and they, they, uh, they observe the ceremonies, the rituals, They go out and maybe help in the local food pantry. Nothing wrong with that. But they think because of it, they have a relationship with God. And it's not true. I know a lot of unbelievers that do a lot of charitable works. They're not saved. And going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. That kind of thing, all right? We have to understand that Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees had religion. Most of them were hypocrites. He's a good guy. He's sincere. Most of these men were hypocrites. And Jesus told them, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look all clean and white and pure and holy. But on the inside, you're full of defilement and corruption, hypocrisy. See, religion only surface cleanses a person's life, but can't reach into the heart. That's the problem. The fundamental problem is the fallen heart of man. We all had it when we were born. We got it from Adam. Only Christianity offers a new birth, where when you accept Christ, you are born again or born of the Spirit. It's a fundamental change of nature. Peter said we become partakers of God's nature. The Spirit moves in and now begins to work from the inside out to make us what the people God wants us to be, and we start seeing changes right away. We'll talk about that more in a second. So he's not talking about religion here, he's talking about a relationship that brings again about a fundamental change of existence. And then the Lord illustrates spiritual birth using the wind, <laughs> interestingly. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but it can, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, <laughs> up until this point, Jesus' words of Nicodemus totally confused. I think verse 8 pushes him over the edge now. He sends Nicodemus' confusion off the charts. And he's exasperated now. He's frustrated because he can't understand what the Lord's talking about. So in verse 9 he says, how can these things be? I just imagine he's really frustrated. Well, let's see if we can't understand what the Lord was saying through this illustration. So let's read verse 8 again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, you wouldn't know it from the English, but verse 8 contains a play on words in the Greek. In Greek, the word pneuma means both wind and spirit. The idea is the work of the Spirit, pneuma, is invisible and mysterious like the blowing of the wind, pneuma. And so Jesus says in that regard, the new birth is very much like the wind. Now look, when it comes to physical birth, every adult knows what's involved in producing a baby, so there's no mystery to that. And then nine months after conception, the baby is born for all to see. I was in the Delivery room with all three of my kids. I saw all three of them being born. It was beautiful. It was even majestic. It wasn't a mystery because there they were. I got to hold them. I got to. to they were real, visible, tangible. Right? Was no mystery. But guys, that's not the. the uh, that's not true. We talk about spiritual conception and birth, as Jesus said, that is a mystery. That is a mystery. How the Holy Spirit plants the seed of God's word in a person's heart and then nurtures it. And, and that could happen through any means. When you give somebody a track, God could use it to plant a seed in their heart. Uh, you know, you you know, witness to somebody at work or a neighbor or somebody. You're planting, the Holy Spirit is using you to plant seeds in their heart. You can't see the seeds being planted. By faith, you believe it's taking place. Now, sometimes the devil swoops in, plucks out the seed right away, and they don't give it a second thought. You can't tell what seed is germinating in that heart. You can't tell how the Holy Spirit is nurturing that seed. From conception, their faith is in the embryonic stage, like a child that's just been conceived. And over nine months, it grows and grows until finally it's big enough or it's mature enough where it is delivered, it is born. The same thing is true with spiritual birth, spiritual conception. The seed is planted, the Spirit nurtures it. We can't see it happening, but it's happening. The Spirit nurtures it, and this embryonic faith begins to grow, and it begins to grow more until finally it reaches, uh, saving faith reaches uh, maturity, and then that person receives Christ and is now born of the Spirit. It's a mystery, isn't it? Moreover, the new birth, like the wind, is unpredictable, okay? No one knows when or where or how the Holy Spirit will touch a person's life, and they're going to get saved. We've all experienced this. Sometimes the people you think would never get saved, get saved. You ever been there? Lord, this person, they're never going to get saved. Man, are they carnal. Man, it's all they ever the way they talk and the way they act, Lord, I don't think they're ever going to get saved. All of a sudden they get saved, right? I believe sometimes God saves the worst of us to communicate to the rest of us nobody's beyond his grace. Nobody is beyond his grace, Right? And then, of course, we've all experienced people that seem very open to God. Every time we witness them, they're nodding their head. You know, you're thinking, wow, I'm getting through. You're not getting through. (laughs) You're not getting through. They just keep nodding, you know. As the Bible says, forever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so it's a mystery, isn't it? You know, how God, the Holy Spirit works this out in different people's lives. And listen, even when a person is born spiritually, unlike A physical baby that can be seen and touched, as we had just said, a person who has just been born again, look, they're still the same person outwardly, aren't they? Physically no change has taken place. In other words, uh, the person doesn't look any different, but like the wind that can be heard and then seen only by the effect it has on the things it touches. So is someone who has been born of the Holy Spirit. They don't look different. But you can see clearly the effects of the Holy Spirit on that person's life and the way they now listen, speak. Didn't Jesus said you can't see the wind, but you can hear it, right? I mean, <laughs> before I got saved, I worked with truck drivers. I have nothing against truck drivers, but they're not the most genteel group of men. And you know how you become like the people you hang around with? Folks, I could cuss The wallpaper off that wall before I got saved. Interesting, the moment I received Christ, that changed. I mean, nobody saw the Spirit touch my life. I didn't see it. But when I received Christ, everything changed. The way I spoke, now people could hear that. I used to cuss and swear and all these. Now there was no more cussing anymore. Okay. took me a while to start saying praise the Lord, but it was coming. Just like the wind can be heard, people can hear a person who has been touched by the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, you can tell that the Holy Spirit, Numa, wind, has touched them because of the changed life they're now living. Again, like the wind that affects things, it touches while itself is invisible. We know, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new what? Creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become brand new. Look, think of how you lived before you got saved compared to the way you're living now. There has been a radical transformation. Now, does that mean we're perfect as Christians? Of course not. Does that mean we never struggle as believers? Certainly not. But the way we are living now, the things that we um, value, our worldview, all of this stuff testifies that the Spirit of God has touched us, touched us. We have been radically changed. I mean, again, maybe you went to church before you got saved. I did. Did I look forward to it? Not really. I went when Sydney and I got married. We went back to the Catholic Church because we were married, you know. And now you're, you're an adult. You're married. You know, you got to start acting like an adult. We figured, well, you know, we got a God in our life, so we went back to the Catholic Church. Didn't take us long to realize God really wasn't there for us. wasn't there. But when I came out of church, I felt good that I had done my duty. Did I look forward to going? No. Um, did, Did it really help me in any way? Not really. But once I gave my heart to Christ, the Spirit of God moved in. And a radical transformation took place from the inside out. I mean, think about this for a second. Last week, we fasted for five days and came to church every night for prayer. How many of you would have been open to that before you got saved? And if you heard somebody say, you're going to fast for five, you're not going to eat for five days? And then go to church every night of the week to pray? They would have thought, you are a lunatic. You are a weirdo, all right? Because before we got saved, we couldn't even imagine that. Even if we did go to church once in a while, that was radical. That was weird. But when the Spirit of God moves in, suddenly you want to be in church with God's people. You have a hunger for the Word of God. You want to be in His presence in prayer. You want to tell others about Him. Again, guys, this is not anyone forcing you to do anything. It's a fundamental change from the inside working its way out. You love the Lord because the Spirit of God is now inside of you. You're a child of God. Everything is different. Everything has become brand new. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, Jesus said, Nicodemus, being born of the Spirit is like your experience with the wind. You can see the wind's effect, but not the wind itself. With those who are born again, the effects of the Spirit are visible in their lives, even though the Spirit cannot be seen. One of the reasons we have not seen our country swept or taken over by, for Jesus is that there has not been sufficient evidence of the Spirit in Christians' lives. In many cases, salvation, quote-unquote, is a bogus experience, end quote. Very true. Because Paul said in Titus, chapter one, verse sixteen, to Titus, the young pastor, many people profess to be Christians, but by their lives and the way they're living, it's obvious they don't know the Lord. Paul said that. It was true in his day. And it's very true in our day as well. Just because you go to church doesn't mean anything. Whoop do you do? Okay. I'm happy you're here. I'm I'm just saying. Go into, if you're going to a good church that's going to teach you the word, God bless you. That's good. That's beneficial. If you're like me as a Catholic, just going to church just to, to you know get, get my time card stamped, you know, I went to church. Here I am, God. Okay, you better bless me now. That doesn't do anything. doesn't do anything. Now, look, as I said, Nicodemus was you know kind of off the charts confused by all this talk about wind and new birth. And so he says to the Lord in verse 9, once again, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Here Jesus chides Nicodemus, who he calls, listen, the teacher of Israel. Definite article. In other words, a teacher that all the other Jews look to for spiritual understanding of the scriptures. Jesus says, you, you're one of the top teachers in Israel, and you don't understand what I'm talking about? See, by saying that to this man, he's, Jesus is saying this stuff was in Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. Because Jesus is holding Nicodemus accountable for not knowing what God has obviously already said in the Jewish scriptures, our, again, Old Testament. Look, as New Testament Christians, we understand that the kingdoms of this world are entered into through physical birth, right? I mean, a person born in a country is automatically a citizen of that country or kingdom. On the other hand, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And as such, can't be entered into through a physical birth, no. Can only be entered into through a spiritual birth. Now listen, we can't fault Nicodemus for not knowing about this, for not understanding New Testament doctrine when in fact he was not Privy to New Testament doctrine as we are. Jesus was giving him a crash course right now in John 3. So the light was starting to dawn or come on. But we can't hold him accountable for not knowing what he didn't have. He didn't have New Testament doctrine. Also, I don't think Jesus is chiding Nicodemus for not understanding the mystery of the new birth itself and how it works. I mean, that's why he called it a mystery. Because no human being understands it. So what is he chiding Nicodemus about? Well, I believe he's chiding Nicodemus for being ignorant to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform a life. Which is why I believe he gave the illustration in verse 8 of the wind affecting what it touches, although it, is, it itself is invisible. He's really talking, so let me just say this. Using the wind, he's saying, look, when the wind blows, no one can see it because it's invisible. But the effects are clearly seen. And that's the point here, okay? The same is true when the Holy Spirit touches a person's life. This is what he's communicating to Nicodemus. The Spirit is invisible, but the effect that he has on a person's life, listen, is powerful and unmistakable. Powerful and unmistakable. Look at, guys, I've said it before, let me say it again. People can argue with your doctrine. You can go out there, people at work, and you can try to give them the gospel, read them a few verses of God's word, and they might just reject it out of hand. But you know what? They can't argue with a changed life. They can't argue with a changed life. That's why Jesus said, let your light so shine, that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and just live the Christian life. Let the Holy Spirit give us the grace to be Christians at work or when we're around people. Because people who know you're a Christian, they're looking at you. They're studying your life. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. They're studying to see if you really believe what you claim to believe and if it's made a difference in your life. Because if it hasn't, why do I want it? If it hasn't made a difference in your life, what do I want it? That's why Paul said, I don't need letters from you. I don't don't need anyone to recommend my ministry. You're my living epistles. Your lives are are in evidence. Your changed lives are in evidence. When you go out into the world, people are reading your life, basically. You are living epistles, known and read by all men, is the idea. So Jesus, I believe, is chiding Nicodemus by saying, look, you know, you're the teacher of Israel. You're one of the top teachers. Don't you understand what I'm saying? As a teacher of the Jewish scriptures, you yourself don't understand these things, Nicodemus? Chiding it. What should Nicodemus have understood from the Jewish scriptures? Well, you remember in, first, I'll just give you a couple, there's dozens. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 6, God is talking to the first king of Israel, King Saul. And at one point he says, I'm going to put my spirit upon you and you are going to be turned into another man. You're going to be completely transformed. Your life will no longer be the same. Of course, this was a promise that God gave to all of Israel, which Nicodemus should have remembered. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't connect. I don't know. But in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 7 God made a promise to the nation of Israel and to Pharisees like Nicodemus who were trying to be, to earn God's favor by keeping the law, but they weren't doing so well. And Jesus said, or excuse me, the Lord said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. There is coming a day when I'm going to take my spirit and put it inside the heart of every person who believes in me. And in such, I'm going to write my laws in your hearts and you're going to do from the heart what you haven't been able to do through external laws. That's what I think Jesus was chiding Nicodemus about. We're not understanding the whole thing. Verse 11. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, who's the Lord talking about there? We. Okay? We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, uh, and, but you don't receive our witness. Who is the we and our that Jesus is talking about? Probably himself and his disciples, but would include all who are born of the Spirit. We know what we're talking about. I just talked to a, a dear saint after first servant, been coming here for years, and she was talking about her old life before Christ and the partying and everything else, and finally how she received Jesus as her Savior. And And, and it took a little while, but the Lord transitioned her out of the out of the nightlife scene and the clubbing and, and all of that. And, and, and her last visit to one of these clubs... A new club in town, and she was really wanting to go, but she had been a Christian now for a while. And still kind of hanging to the old life a little bit, went into this club and sat there and was miserable. Didn't connect. And God says, the Lord spoke to me so clearly. He said, this is not who you are anymore. That person's dead. She's gone. And she said, I just left. Not because somebody told me to leave. I just knew in my heart I didn't belong here anymore. This, is, wasn't, this, this wasn't the place I was going to find any fulfillment or anything. We understand this. We can say to people who are unsaved, look, I've been where you are. You've never been where I am. Not until you give your heart to Christ. Then you understand the old life and the new. We know what we're talking about, Jesus said. We know the truth. We're testifying to. But you in the Greek, it's plural. It refers to Nicodemus and his religious colleagues. Also, though, including all who are not born of the Spirit, therefore cannot know the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man or the unsaved person does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Look, an unbeliever can read the Bible, but they can't interact with the Word of God on a level that we can Certainly they can read it. I know unbelievers that have memorized significant passages of Scripture. But they can't interact with it like we can. Because the Spirit of God is not in them as He's in us. And when the Spirit of God, Spirit of God lives inside of you, the author of God's Word, it's a whole different ballgame. You know, the things that you didn't... I didn't understand the Bible. I, read it, I started reading it before I got saved. And I'm plowing through, and oh my goodness, it was dry. I started with Genesis... I hit Leviticus and Deuteronomy and wanted to kill myself. It was just, oh my gosh, this is so dry. I can't take it. Then I went out to California to visit my parents who had recently moved. My mom became a Christian, took us to church, heard the Word of God, the gospel. And somewhere in that period of time, I received Christ. I came back. I'm not making this up. I opened the Bible. I didn't understand all of it, but oh my goodness. It made sense. It made sense. Now I could understand. No, not everything. But I could understand so much that I couldn't understand before. This difference or this contrast between the children of God and the children of this world was a contrast that Jesus really made crystal clear in John 8, verse 23, when he said, in talking to the Pharisees, Again, religious unbelievers. You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Can you get a clear distinction between the saved and the unsaved and that? Verse 12, John 3. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, guys, what did the Lord mean? When he said to Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. What are these earthly things he's referring to? Well, I think what he's talking about, is what he's referring to is that it takes a spiritual birth to enter into God's, listen, earthly kingdom. Because that's what the kingdom was all about. The Messiah coming, establishing a kingdom on the earth where he would reign from Jerusalem visibly over the entire world. That's what the Jews were looking for, an earthly kingdom. What they didn't understand was that you couldn't enter into this earthly kingdom by simply being born in, uh, into the world. It would take a spiritual birth. Okay, But then what did he mean when he said, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You can't understand earthly truth. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Well, what are these heavenly things he's referring to? Well, probably the means by which a person is born of the Spirit. In other words, the truths which are explained in the following Verses, very important, or in other words, the wonderful way by which a person receives this new birth. And that's what Jesus is about to enlighten Nicodemus to. Which brings us to our second main point, the con- looking at the um, confused seeker, Okay. the next main point is the condescending Savior. Now, when we think of someone being condescending to us, we think of them putting us down, don't we? Putting us down when you're talking about one human being to another, well, that is insulting. Because we're all equal in God's eyes. God is no respecter of persons. Nobody is better than anybody else on this earth. And therefore, we should all treat each other with mutual respect. But when we talk about God condescending to us, that is legitimate. Let me tell you what the dictionary says, how it defines condescend. It defines it this way to behave as if one is conscious of descending from a superior position, rank, or dignity, to put aside one's dignity or superiority voluntarily and assume equality with one regarded as an inferior. Folks, that's what the gospel is all about. The supreme, perfect God of the universe condescended that which was or is superior voluntarily came down to relate to those who are inferior to him as if we were co-equals. Understand that God's condescension towards us isn't a put-down. It's an act of mercy and love as we're going to see in our text. Verse 13, No one, Jesus had ever ascended to heaven. Now, Listen. When the Lord said no one has ascended to heaven, he didn't mean that Old Testament saints like Enoch and Elijah didn't go up to heaven. They did. The difference was that they had been taken up by God. Whereas no person has ever ascended to heaven by their own power is the idea. Or in other words by their own human goodness and hard work religiously speaking as the Pharisees sought to do. Guys, To ascend into heaven a person would have to be as perfect as Jesus. How perfect was Jesus? He was sinless. He's going to say that directly in John 16 verse 10. No one ever ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who has come down. Because the only righteousness God will accept of into heaven is the righteousness of Christ which is sinless perfection. This is why this section is so important. Because many religious people in our culture think, if I just live a good life, I'll ascend to heaven someday. In fact, let me just say this. Every religion on the face of the earth, apart from Christianity, is based on human achievement. Where a person endeavors to make, if I can borrow the term, a stairway to heaven, where each step is made up of a good work and if he or she can do enough good works during the course of their life well they believe they can ascend to heaven that's religion I grew up with that I grew up believing that if I went to church kept the sacraments and the feast days the holy days if I prayed the rosary and lit the candles and did my penance and so on did the stations of the cross all those things would earn me heaven. They were a stairway that would allow me to ascend to heaven. Well, Jesus said and made it very clear that no one has ever reached heaven that way, no one. He said, no one verse 13 ascended to heaven. no one has ascended to heaven, but he who what came down from heaven. that is the Son of man who was in heaven. Look, first of all, he said to Nicodemus in verse 12, Look, if you don't understand earthly things, how can I talk to you about heavenly things? There's only one person that has ever lived that was qualified to speak about heavenly things, right? And that was Jesus Christ. Why? Because he came down from heaven. Jesus was not a teacher sent from God, a human being like John the Baptist, chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, right? John was a human being. John didn't come down from heaven. He was born on the earth. Jesus Christ came down from heaven. Before he was incarnated into a human body, he lived for all eternity past with the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven. He was uniquely qualified to talk about heavenly things. Unlike a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about, they're preachers and teachers who give a good line talk a good talk but know nothing about what it really is all about. I hear some of these preachers on the radio talking about our mansions in heaven. And I had a vision. You know, I was walking down this golden street and I saw the largest mansion there on the block. And I said, Lord, who does that belong to? That's your mansion. Because you send in all that money to the preacher, you know, and, and that's your mansion. Oh, baloney. You know, turn the channel. Our mansions are going to be the glorified bodies we're going to live in for eternity, all gathered around the Father and the Son. I mean, this this is where we're going to live in heaven. There's not going to be one side of the railroad tracks where the mansions are, and for those who weren't so hot in the faith, you got the other side (laughs) of the tracks, you know. And I don't want to go over there and visit with those folks. They're not worthy of my fellowship. Can you imagine heaven being like that? So a lot of people talk about things and they don't know nothing what of what they're talking about. Only the Lord was qualified to talk on heavenly things. And he said, look, nobody ever ascended into heaven. But the Son of Man has come down. Jesus entered into this world on a search and rescue mission. He said, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. The Bible teaches that man is not basically good. This, this is a fallacy, you know, it, Pretty much every unbeliever, ask our evangelism team, pretty much every unbeliever thinks they're basically a good person, and because they're basically a good person, they're going to get into heaven someday, okay? What they don't realize is that the Bible says very clearly there's none good. No, not one. Nobody is worthy to get into heaven because they're a quote-unquote good person. The Bible teaches that we are all sinners by nature who could never reach heaven through our good works, works of righteousness, because as God has called them in, uh, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, they are filthy rags. Anything we do to try to earn heaven, we, we offer to God, those are filthy rags. Defiled garments, I can't take those. I, I don't accept them. Now listen, since we could not go up to where God is, he came down to where we are. Listen, he condescended. He left his exalted throne in heaven, became one of us, and stooped low. He met us on our turf. We couldn't ascend to heaven, so he came down to the earth. He came down to the earth to rescue us out of the pit that man had fallen into through sin and to lift us up into heaven someday. But listen to me. Before we could be lifted up, well, first Jesus had to be lifted up. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Listen, sin had to be judged and paid for before God could offer sinners forgiveness and salvation. This was illustrated in the Old Testament, a story recorded in Numbers 21, verses 4-9. to A story that Jesus is alluding to in verse 14 of John 3. Let me just try to give you a quick thumbnail sketch of what it was all about. The children of Israel had come out of Egypt, and God led them to the border of the promised land, sent in the 12 spies to spy it out. Uh, Ten brought back an evil report. We can't go in there. There's giants. We'll get, we'll get murdered. Joshua and Caleb brought back a good report. Hey, with God, they're big, but God's with us. We'll, victory's ours. But the people listened to the evil spies and refused to go into the promised land. So God says, okay, you don't want to enter my, my promised land? Then you know what, I'm going to drive you back out in the wilderness where you're going to wander for 38 years until you adults die out and your children, whom you said I led out here to kill, your children will inherit the promised land. And so now they're wandering, wandering, wandering in the wilderness. And as they wandered in the wilderness, even the young people started growing up and they started to become discouraged at one point and impatient. And they began to complain against the Lord. Now understand when I say they began to complain against the Lord. It wasn't a mild kind of complaining. This was a very deep, harsh complaining. God is a liar. He didn't bring us out here to bring us into any promised land. He just brought us out of Egypt to kill us in this wilderness. He's a liar. He can't be trusted. That was what they were saying. So that was very serious in the eyes of God. So what did he do? Well, he punished them by sending fiery serpents into the camp of Israel to bite people, and many of them died. When the survivors cried out to the Lord in repentance, pleading for mercy, the Lord told Moses to make a serpent out of brass, put it on a pole, and lift it up in the center of the camp. And the idea was that anyone who had been bitten by one of these snakes, if they looked upon the brass serpent on the pole by faith, very important, they would be miraculously healed. Jesus quoted this Old Testament incident to illustrate how the new birth takes place. Look, mankind has been bitten by the serpent of sin, and as such is now dying from the venom, quote-unquote, that has been injected into the human race by the sin of Adam. The Bible says in Adam all what? Die. In Adam all die. And anyone not healed of the serpent's bite of this, of sin in this life will be condemned to eternal death in the life to come. Or in other words, eternal separation from God in hell. That's the idea. The serpent of brass was a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. You said, well, wait a minute, you said it was, it was sin. Well, yeah. But when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he became sin for us. So in reality, that brass serpent was a type of Of Jesus Christ. The pull, of course, speaks of Calvary's cross upon which the Lord was lifted up. Brass in the Bible is the medal of judgment, always speaks of judgment, which represented the fact that on the cross sin was judged and paid for. Of course, Jesus should never have died, he wasn't guilty. He should never have been punished as a guilty man, he was sinless. But he took our place willingly. And bore the judgment which we deserved. I don't want to have you turn to these. You know them, but you can write them down. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, the scourging lashes across his back, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For the Father made the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now guys, as we bring this to a close, it's important to understand that those who were bitten by the fiery serpents were provided, listen, only one way from God by which they might be healed. Only one way. They had to look upon the brass serpent lifted up on that pole by faith. If anyone bitten refused to look upon the brass serpent by faith. And I would imagine there was a lot of skeptics in Israel, as even as there are skeptics today in America. I would imagine that when a person was bitten back then by these one of these fiery serpents, and they began to writhe in agony and began to die on the ground there. If you were back then and you ran up to them and said, look, look, Here's the antidote. Look to the serpent on the, on the pole. You'll be healed. Oh, what's that going to do? I need a doctor. I need medicine. You know? And I'm sure a lot of skeptics refused because it sounded too stupid, too foolish. It's what the Bible calls the foolishness of God, which is wiser than men. Some, that The way God chose for people to be saved, to believe in a Jewish carpenter who claimed to be the son of God, just to look to him, And sin will be, you'll be healed of sin. The serpent's bite will not be a problem any longer. For a lot of people that sounds like utter foolishness. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To the the intellectuals that seems like foolishness. To the ultra-religious that's a stumbling block. And so back then if they refused to look upon that brass serpent on the pole, they died needlessly. Again, the same is true for anyone in our culture. Our sins are not automatically forgiven just because Jesus was lifted up on that cross. We must look to him by faith. In other words, believe in him and receive him as Lord and Savior. We'll end with verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Guys, the healing of sin and salvation from hell is as easy, not that it was easy for Jesus. He did all the work, though. But from our perspective, it's as easy as looking to Jesus by faith. In his commentary on John, chapter 3, Warren Worsby said this, and I quote, on January 6, 1850, a snowstorm almost crippled the city of Colchester, England, and a teenage boy wasn't able to get to the church he usually attended. So he made his way to a nearby Methodist chapel, where an ill-prepared layman was substituting for the absent preacher. The layman's text was Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For many months, this young teenager had been miserable and under the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit, but though he had been reared in church, his dad and grandfather were both preachers, he did not have the assurance of salvation. He wasn't saved. The unprepared substitute minister did not have much to say, so he kept repeating the text. A man need not go to college to learn to look, he shouted. Anyone can look, a child can look. About that time, he saw the visitor sitting to one side of the church and pointed at him and said, Young man, you look miserable. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Interesting how the Holy Spirit works. Who would think that would bring too many people to Christ? Worsby said the young man did look by faith. And that was how the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted to Christ. (laughs) Worsby adds the difference between perishing and living. And between condemnation and salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus could well have come into this world as a judge and destroyed every rebellious sinner. But in love, he came to this world as our Savior. And he died for us on the cross. He became the uplifted serpent. The brass serpent in Moses' day brought physical life to dying Jews. But Jesus Christ gives eternal life to anyone who trusts him. He has salvation for the whole world, end quote. Anyone who looks to him will be saved. There's no quota. There's no limit. Oops, you just missed the cutoff. I'm sorry. I had you, wow, you were close. But, uh, you know, uh, cutoff was two days ago. We, you know, you're out. No, thank God anyone can be saved who looks to Christ, right? Now, again, we're done. Let me just close by saying, as we talked about last week, John chapter 3 contains some of the most well-known and best-loved verses for us who are Christians in the, in the Word of God. And I'm thinking primarily about the first 16 verses, which basically, basically revolve around two great must statements by Jesus. These must statements are found in verses 7 and 14, where Jesus said, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus, and to all your friends, it's plural actually, You must be born again. We'll call that must the must of the sinner. What a sinner must do to be saved. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We'll call that the must of the Savior. Because without Jesus being lifted up, we could never be lifted up to heaven. And guys, together they lead up to and climax in The single greatest message of love and hope ever given to mankind, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, whoever, should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, guys, that verse and those that follow, I want to look at next time. Hopefully finish this section uh, all the way down to verse 21. But verse 16 is just too beautiful and powerful just to gloss over. Let's just spend a little time with it, and then we'll move on and hopefully get in the entire uh, final main point uh, next time. But um, there is nothing more important in life than knowing where you're going to spend eternity. Well, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I was baptized, confirmed, you know. Uh, None of that saves You must bow the knee to Christ as your Lord and accepting him, looking to him, turning your life over to him in essence. When you do, a miracle takes place instantaneously. The spirit of God moves in. Your sins are washed. You inherit a new nature. You are born of the spirit. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes brand new. If you've never experienced it, you have no frame of reference to relate to it. But you can if this morning you give your heart to Christ. So may God, hopefully nobody will leave here this morning without making a commitment to Christ if you haven't made one. It changes everything. It absolutely changes everything, as you'll see. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It's a light, Lord, to guide us in the darkness of this world. And we thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved us so much. That you condescended. You left your exalted throne in heaven and you became one of us. And you died in our place. Because you were lifted up on the cross, we can now be lifted up into heaven someday. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.